Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a very good afternoon it is. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me as we kick off another week of Cresta in the Afternoon. On October 3, 1933, Albert Einstein gave a speech to an international audience uh, at the Royal Albert Hall in London. It was called Science and Civilization. It was his first public appearance since Hitler's rise to power. And uh, he was actually guarded uh, because there had been threats. That's why he left Germany. There had been threats on his life. It's an amazing uh, lecture. And I want to share some of what he said, plus some other insights that I have related to what needs to be defended uh, in our past in order to preserve our ongoing respect for liberty and freedom. And it's now an especially good time to do it because of the problems we see in Israel. Also, we're going to take a look at uh, someone who's been investigating the Israeli Defense Force video that shows Hamas tunnels under the hospital. Uh, David Adiznek joins us. And then uh, we're going to be joined by Anya Hoffman, Executive Director of the Observatory on Intolerance and Discrimination Against Christians in Europe. Uh, they've discovered that Europe has witnessed a 44% jump in anti-Christian hate crimes. These include uh, a big bump up in arson of churches. And so we'll be talking to Anya about that. And then uh, you might have heard the story from last week that there was a, a viral trend on TikTok that was rather shocking. Somehow users began rediscovering Osama bin Laden's letter to America, written back in 2002. In fact, we read portions of that letter on this program back then. Um, he was giving his rationale for what eventually became the 9-11 attacks. Uh, multiple users at, on TikTok claimed that somehow his arguments have opened their eyes and that bin Laden made good points and uh, they see why Israel deserves attack. Raymond Ibrahim, who in fact is editor of the Al-Qaeda Reader, will be joining us. And then we look at probably the most important American Catholic of the 19th century you've never heard of, Father Isaac Hecker, who has just been, uh, his cause for beatification has just been pushed forward by the U.S. bishop. So stay with me. There's a lot on our plate today. Right now, though, it's the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Monday, November 20th, it's the Feast of St. Edmund. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Israel's ambassador to the U.S. says his country's government is against a ceasefire, but willing to agree to a pause in the fighting for the release of hostages. Speaking on ABC's This Week, Michael Herzog outlining the difference between a pause and a ceasefire. It's not a ceasefire because we will continue to push against Hamas to dismantle their military infrastructure and their terror infrastructure. We're not going to stop that. Herzog saying a pause in the fighting would last just for a few days to allow for a significant number of hostages to be released. 
He said Israel's against a ceasefire because Hamas would use it as a chance to regroup and strike again. Herzog emphasizing that Israel will continue its objective to dismantle Hamas military and terror infrastructure. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter will be laid to rest next week. She passed away at the age of 96 Sunday afternoon after being diagnosed with dementia in March. The Carter Center announcing ceremonies celebrating the life of Rosalind Carter will be held starting November 27th in Georgia. The public will be able to pay their respects as she lies in repose at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum in Atlanta that night. The U.S. Supreme Court is rejecting an appeal by the former Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd. That means Derek Chauvin's second-degree murder conviction and sentence will be upheld. A storm in the Midwest is causing headaches for millions of Thanksgiving travelers. According to FlightAware, over 1,000 flights delayed within, into, or out of the U.S. today. Forecasters say heavy thunderstorms are moving into the central plains after bringing rain to parts of Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being here. Joseph Leconte uh, has a wonderful article uh, in National Review that uh, I want to share portions of it with you. And I, there's a bunch of material I want to share with you as well from uh, an older book by the late uh, Jewish philosopher Dagobert Runes called The Hebrew Impact on Western Civilization. But uh, in September of 1933, let me begin there. That's where Joseph begins. The world's most famous scientist, a Jew, was forced to renounce his German citizenship, and he had to flee. He's basically in exile. Uh, he knew he'd find safe harbor in the democracies of the West, so he had help from friends in Great Britain. And he arrived in England, settled into a country hut in the coastal town of Cromer. After it was reported that the Nazis had put a hefty price on Einstein's head, Commander Oliver Lampson, a benefactor, placed an armed guard at the property, and Einstein quipped, I really had no idea my head was worth all that, end quote. Before leaving for the United States, where his arrival was eagerly awaited, Einstein confessed to a reporter, quote, listen to this, I could not believe that it was possible that such spontaneous affection could be extended to one who is a wanderer on the face of the earth. That phrase, wanderer on the face of the earth, is one of the ways of saying Jew. Um, it, such spontaneous affection could be extended to one who is a wanderer on the face of the earth. He didn't know such a thing was possible. Um, yeah, I think today what's going on in reaction to troubles in the Middle East and the uh, Israel's a war against Hamas, and you don't see that spontaneous affection for the Jew any longer. Um, you know, we're seeing a genocidal assault on Israeli c civilians. We saw that again October seventh, and then just extraordinary expressions of hatred uh, during protests and speeches. And what's frustrating about this is what I've complained about many times. What's at the center of this is historical amnesia. Our, our citizens don't have much memory. They don't have national memory. Uh, they don't have ecclesial memory. Okay. 
They don't have cultural memory. There's a staggering influence uh, of this amnesia. We do not remember our ideals or institutions that built our civilization. We don't know what it took to make possible the achievements in human freedom, equality, and justice, and protect those uh, values. We don't know how we uh, managed to achieve them, and we don't know how to protect them. Einstein had a good idea. And on October 3rd, 1933, before he left for his permanent home in the United States, he gave this speech called Science and Civilization in the Royal Albert Hall in London. And um, it was quite a lecture. Uh, it was an unabashed tribute to Western civilization that, in our climate today, would probably be shouted down at nearly every Ivy League university in America. That's the point that Joseph Leconte makes in this piece in National Review. Einstein's lecture would probably be shouted down at nearly every Ivy League university in America. Einstein said, this is 1933, Today, he warned, the questions which concern us are, how can we save mankind in its spiritual acquisitions of which we are heirs? How can we save Europe from a new disaster? Well, his answer was to recommit ourselves to defending the achievements of our civilization in politics, science, philosophy, literature, medicine, and the arts. He said, we are concerned not merely with the technical problem of securing and maintaining peace, but also with the important task of education and enlightenment. If we want to resist the powers which threaten to suppress the intellectual and individual freedom, we must keep clearly before us what is at stake and what we owe to that freedom which our ancestors have won for us after hard struggles. And then he explained, uh, you know, without this freedom, there would have been no Shakespeare, no Goethe, no Newton, no Pasteur. And without these thinkers, uh, without the scientific and technological advances that had been pioneered in the West, quote, most people would live a dull life of slavery, end of quote. Despotism would be the norm. You know, this is something that... It's just amazing to me that we have this new hostility towards the Jew. I think a lot of us had assumed, especially in America, that anti-Semitism was a thing of the past. Uh, America has generally been a welcome home for the Jewish people. Um, but again, there's, there's uh, lack of memory. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this today, and I remembered a book, 1951 book by Dagobert Runes. It's not a very popular book, but I picked it up years ago. It's called The Hebrew Impact on Western Civilization. And it's, a very, it's, it's page after page, name after name, discipline after discipline. He lists Jewish people who have contributed mightily to our civilization in all kinds of fields. I mean, you can take a look, um, you know, at the what we call um, liberty, and you go to the Puritans of Massachusetts and Connecticut. They look to the Old Testament for organizing their church, organizing their society. Uh, in fact, this idea of the covenant was the underlying idea in the Mayflower Contract. The Puritans felt that the church was, in actuality, a continuation of the covenant between God and the Jews. And they built up a whole body of law. You can, you know, you can look it up. 
uh, you can you know look at the um, laws of uh, uh, New England, uh, work by Joseph Cotton, and you'll see there uh, Old Testament ideas fleshed out uh, for a Puritan commonwealth. They built up a body of law all about the covenant. Uh, in the words of William Ames and Joseph Cotton and other Puritan leaders, quote, a church responsible not to bishops or assemblies, but to God himself. There was an authority higher than man. There was an authority higher than the state. Okay. There was an authority higher than even ecclesiastical leadership. Uh, how many people know, for instance, um, what Jews have con- contributed to civilization? And the Runes goes into this a bit. He points out that, remember, the book is published in 1951, so it's right after the discovery of the Holocaust. And um, his book shows that he felt it was important to talk about Jewish contributions to civilization. He points out that German Nobel Prize winners, half of the German Nobel Prize winners were men of Jewish descent. There are 60 million Germans and only 600,000 Jews, and half of the Nobel Prize winners were Jews. And the Germans showed their gratitude by massacring six million of them in six years. Runes goes over those who have been um, important in medicine. So, for instance, in the 50 years leading up to the book, 11 Jewish doctors were awarded the Nobel Prize for medicine. That was about 25% of all the Nobel recipients in medicine. It was a Jew who first proposed a National Medical Association for management of standards and ethics uh, for doctors. That was the became, while he was still alive, and he was a founder, the American Medical Association, 1847. He helped compose the Code of Medical Ethics there. Uh, you have uh, Dr. Aaron Fiedenwalds, uh, professor at the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Baltimore, organized the Maryland Ophthalmological Society in 1898, was its first citizen. Uh, it was a Jew who discovered the diagnosis of astigmatism, Emile Javel. Uh, and he goes down the list. I, I can't do justice to his lists, but he goes over Jewish surgeons, obstetrics, people in gynecology, urology, cardiovascular disease, dermatology, preventive medicine, vaccines. It, it's, a, it's really an amazing, um, amazing list of contributions. You know, Einstein was best known for his general theory of relativity, relativity published in 1915. It revolutionized the world of physics. It made him an international celebrity. But his Jewish identity and his criticism of the Nazis made him an object of scorn in the German press. His scientific works were publicly burned in Berlin. And there is Nazi propaganda that shows a photograph of Einstein with a caption in capital letters, not yet hanged. Uh, the assassination of one of his associates in Czechoslovakia, the German-Jewish philosopher Theodor Lessing, convinced him to leave the continent. Lessing stayed, and he was killed. Einstein at first was sympathetic to the Zionist cause. Uh, then he kind of backed away from the idea because he regarded the Arab peoples living in Palestine as kinfolk. And he worried that a Jewish state on Arab land would create hostilities. But the deepening anti-Semitism in Germany and Europe uh, changed his mind. Uh, 
When he was asked to explain what he found most compelling about his Jewish heritage, Einstein extolled, quote, the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, a critical spirit that prevents blind obeisance to any mortal authority. He also revealed his understanding of the gift of the Jews to Western civilization. It involved, in his words, quote, the democratic idea of social justice and tolerance among all people. It was the Jewish concept, he said, of a moral law rooted in the belief of a purposeful creator that had powerfully influenced Christianity and Islam. It was that that had a benign influence, a good influence, upon the social structure of a great part of mankind. I spent time talking about historical contributions because these historical insights are no longer part of our educational outlook in the West. I was a humanities major uh, at Michigan State. I spent a lot of time in Western Civ. But today, the contribution, say, of Judaism to the cause of justice and freedom is virtually unknown in college curricula. I mean, courses in Western civilization have all but vanished from our nation's leading colleges and universities. You know, interest in studying the humanities uh, hit, you know, those are the disciplines that reveal the stunning achievements of the West. It's hit an all-time low. And at the same time, there's never been a moment in the modern period when self-hatred directed at our own democratic and religious traditions has been so violent and widespread. Einstein had good advice. Quote, care for what is eternal and highest among our possessions. The fate of the Jews and the fate of the West are inextricably linked, and they've become so now again. Father Benedict Groeschel. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the president of some country or something. You might get a lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have, and we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence, and in proportion as we believe that He is present, we shall have them, and not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that God is present to us. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. We're our servants of prayer. The Christian family is the first place of education in prayer, says the Catholic Catechism. The family is the domestic church where children learn to pray and to persevere in prayer. Ordained ministers are also responsible for forming their brothers and sisters in prayer. Many in the religious life have consecrated their whole lives to prayer. The consecrated life is sustained by prayer and is one of the living sources of contemplation and spiritual life of the church. Catechesis aims to teach all members of the church to meditate on the Word of God in personal and liturgical prayer, internalizing it in order to bear fruit in a new life. Prayer groups and spiritual direction can also be powerful tools in the practice of prayer. A spiritual director should be chosen with great care, for as St. John of the Cross warns, as the master is, so will the disciple be. 
This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping! Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit CMFCuro.com to learn more. That's CMFCuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, has become a flashpoint in Israel's war against Hamas, which began, as you know, on October 7th when uh, gunmen from Hamas crossed the border into Israel, killing around 1,200 people, um, most of them civilians. Palestinian and humanitarian agencies are saying that the current fighting in and around al-Shifa is proof of Israel's wanton disregard for civilian life in Gaza. Israel, uh, on its part, is accusing Hamas of using the medical center as a shield for its operations. Uh, Joining me right now to talk about what we're learning from these new videos uh, of the Israeli Defense Forces is David Adesnik. He is Senior Fellow and Director of Research for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he also supervises their publications and research. He specializes in Iran-backed terrorism and Israel at war, served as Policy Director at the Foreign Policy Initiative, and was a Visiting Fellow at the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. David, good to have you here. Thanks. Thank you for having me back. Let's talk about the the IDF uh, videos. What do they show? What don't they show? Well, I think the one of greatest interest shows a tunnel shaft leading down around 10 meters and then going for, you know, longer than that underground until it ends at a blast door, sort of a, a really strong metal door that would deter explosions, which has a small 
sort of port in it that uh, the Israelis say is for a, a rifleman on the other side to mm-hmm. shoot from if necessary. So they've taken reporters uh, from, you know, major publications and networks to see these tunnels. And, um, you know, it's clear proof that this is not a just purely a healthcare facility, but yeah. the general tone of the media coverage has been, no, show us more. Yeah. Uh, this is not enough. Right, right. I mean... What would be the reason for a tunnel at all under there, if not for, you know, the purpose of uh, access uh, to the hospital where they allegedly had a control center? Right. So I think um, there's not really a a separate purpose. I suppose one could imagine a bomb shelter, but it doesn't seem like that's, uh, you don't build a narrow shaft going downwards. It looks like you know, you would build something that might be easier for uh, people in bad condition to get to. Right. Um, but it, it's more become about whether Israel can produce something that is a, you know, a clear command center. That's what the media is now demanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. They set the bar very high. It seems that with the, you know, when Hamas claimed that Israel bombed a hospital, it was right within the headlines immediately yeah. without proof yeah. and had to be retracted. Yeah. I, I mean, what would, what would actually be sufficient evidence of a command center according to the criteria of, say, places like CNN? Uh, You know, it's one of those, you know it when you see it, to paraphrase a Supreme Court justice. I mean, I imagine, you know, some people might be imagining something that looks like mission control in Houston for NASA. (laughs) Right. Lines of analysts at computers. I have a feeling it'd probably be more portable and, of course, designed to to move as necessary, I guess. To be looking just for in you know a more extensive network of, of underground facilities, uh, but you know one of the challenges is of course given the potential for traps and Hamas to continue operations underground. You know Israel has said it will even take days before they open that blast door yeah. that they found at the end of the tunnel. Right, right, yeah, that's exactly right. So it's going to take some time, further time. Uh, let's talk about what we do know about Hamas and hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, we know yeah. they use hospitals as shields. Is that right? That's settled. Yeah, and one of the most interesting things is it has been previous reports from major U.S. media that have established this, or they've used hospitals for a range of things. Um, you know, back when Hamas launched a brief civil war to take control of Gaza from their Palestinian rivals, uh, in 2007 or so. After that, uh, New York Times reporters witnessed seeing them execute prisoners inside uh, Shifa. Mm-hmm. And then in 2014, again, based on just seeing it firsthand, a Washington Post reporter called Shifa the de facto headquarters of Hamas uh, during its, uh, you know, the wartime operations in 2014. So it's somewhat interesting that we're seeing this sort of extensive doubt at the moment, even though these, many of these same organizations reported in a matter-of-fact manner that Hamas was there previously. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there uh, how, Western media? How's Western media responding to these new videos? Well, at least they're reporting them. Um, you know, they they're going with the Israelis to see this tunnel shaft. They're describing a video which uh, apparently shows uh, two hostages, uh, actually apparently one from Nepal and one from Thailand, mm-hmm. uh, who were taken, I guess, as we know, was 40 countries had in, uh, citizens taken uh, by Hamas. And they appear to be just sort of rushed through the lobby of Shifa Hospital. And uh, the uh, line from Hamas is that they were taken there for it to be cared for, uh, which 
doesn't exactly pass the smell test, but, you know, again, it's hard to tell what exactly was going on from this one video. Mm -hmm. And you could tell there's extreme skepticism toward anything, you know, released by the Israeli military. But, you know, over time, I think we're going to see more and more. Have they found weapons at all? A range of weapons. Uh, I mean, in the very early part, they found sort of individual weapons, you know, rifles, grenades, mm-hmm. and they found a number of things. They described stores of weapons. Uh, that's what uh, Netanyahu said in an interview he did with U.S. media. Um, you know, I don't know if they found anything that's sort of entire warehouses yet, but it's clearly it was not as if it was a, you know, sort of pristine place free from, uh, you know, the militants. Of course, they were fighting with the Israelis outside the hospital as well. Yeah, yeah. Do we know how long it'll take to uh, get through that uh, blast door? I mean, the one estimate from an Israeli spokesman was days. Okay. But, you know, I don't know to what extent that's going to be, you know, their number one priority, right? That there's a, a curiosity a little bit like there was a long time ago with Al Capone's vault, but that, you know, if they have to prosecute a war against Hamas, that may not be the top item. <laughs> right. Um do we know that they were firing rockets uh, from the ho- near hospital, hospital area or near hospital? Well, certainly near. There's definitely been fighting going on in this, this whole area around the hospital. Uh, and there's been reports of firing uh, directly out of other hospitals. There was another incident at a hospital called the Indonesian Hospital, where um, I- Israel said it was fired on by people inside the hospital last night. And it returned fire. There was an explosion, and there's some dispute about what caused it. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think we know about larger weapons necessarily coming from hospitals, but uh, definitely regular fire. Yeah. How has, um, you know, on October 18th, a rocket fired by Palestinian Islamic Jihad struck the parking lot area near um, Al Ali Hospital. Hamas rushed to blame Israel, claimed that more than 500 had been killed. How has that played out in international media? Has that been corrected? Well, I would say most of the big papers did sort of follow-up stories assessing the evidence. A number of them sort of looked at video evidence and other material and said, you know, know, based on the crater especially, right, because if you expected a a bomb from an Israeli aircraft, if, if that actually had hit the site, you would see a much larger crater in the ground. And you said you saw a smaller crater and damage to cars in the parking lot consistent with a a smaller rocket. Um, So they've mostly, you know, followed it up that way. Um, You know, there's been various, you might say, sort of CYA to explain, well, there was all this uncertainty. It was reasonable for us to trust the initial account. But, you know, the fact is these were, you know, banner headlines on all the websites. And, you know, people have put together some sort of collage is showing the evolution of the headlines over the course of those 24 hours where it began with Israel strikes hospital Palestinians say blast at hospital uh, and then you know uh, a version that's even more neutral after that so um, you know I'd probably give him a little bit of pause but again it's it's hard to to counter the initial impression and you're right. still seeing right. uh, in a lot of places people believe it was the Israeli yeah we still have a representative in the United States who's saying that. So, <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's, there's 435 members of the House. So, uh, you're bound to have one, right? <laughs> right. Uh, what do you think Hamas has in mind right now? This this blatant disregard for the rules of war. This willingness to uh, lash out uh, at civilians and to show 
zeal and glee in doing so is has really shocked a lot of people. What did they plan as step two in this? Well, I think the end game is survival. I think they fully anticipated a major effort by Israel to come into Gaza to punish them and even to attempt to wipe them out. But I think they are counting on just how deeply entrenched they are to survive and to use those war crimes to facilitate their survival, right? The, the hostages are a very powerful negotiating chip. It's very important to realize, right, read the 200 or so Israeli families that have a loved one being imprisoned somewhere in Gaza are desperate to have them released for obvious reasons. You can only imagine, you know, someone you love being tormented in a tunnel, you know, dark uh, under, underneath the ground. And uh, they're likely to support some kind of deal. And, you know, the, the announcements from the White House and from Israeli officials is they're close to some kind of deal that might, you know, release 50 or so hostages in exchange for a ceasefire. And that means Hamas knows it might be able to string it out. First trade 50 hostages for several days, yeah, yeah. maybe another dozen hostages for a few days, and buy themselves more time. And ideally, they can make it so it's too hard for Israel to restart the war. Um, because, again, survival is the victory for them. If they show they can commit an atrocity of this magnitude and not be wiped out, um, that that would be an achievement. Yeah. Um, is there any... Anything they can do, I, I, can they serve, Can they survive this? I mean, the the complete abandonment of uh, moral law here is shocked a lot of people in the West, and I'm wondering if the same um, scandal has affected uh, the leadership in other Muslim dominant uh, uh, nations, uh, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, do they show? Uh, such do they show disgust at Hamas's behavior? Um, condemnations have come from some of these governments, including the United Arab Emirates, the Saudis, um, those who traditionally have been more willing to interact with Israel or even recognize Israel like the Emirates. But, you know, you see nothing like the full-throated denunciations there you would see from Western leaders, and many of them are hesitant. I mean, Egypt, to the limited extent it has condemned, it also has a society that's in many respects praising Hamas. It's, it's, it has anchors that, you know, on major news programs that tell Hamas representatives how proud they are of them. Wow. Um, you know, anti-Semitism is very deeply seated. Yeah. Yeah. Despite yeah. the fact that it's in peace with Israel. David, thanks once again. Appreciate your help. Thank you for having me. Be well. David Adesnik is Senior Fellow and Director of Research for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I'm Al Cresto. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org 
A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter Him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. His friends in need, he can heal. They've seen him heal before. And yet somehow because he loves him, he stays. And Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best. When in fact, he has something which far surpasses what we ask for. The challenge is in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care? Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The Vienna-based Observatory on Intolerance and Discrimination Against Christians in Europe released its annual report last Thursday, and it shows that Europe has witnessed a 44% jump in anti-Christian hate crimes across more than two dozen European countries. Um, Join me right now to talk about the report and to give us some idea of how serious a problem this is, is Anya Hoffman. Executive Director of the Observatory on Intolerance and Discrimination Against Christians in Europe. Anya, good to have you here. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for having me. Greetings from Vienna. Uh, let me let me begin by saying um, I'm unfamiliar with your organization. When did you get started? We were started more than a decade ago. We are called the Observatory on Intolerance and Discrimination Against Christians in Europe. And we were really started with that focus to investigate the situation across Europe, because back then this phenomenon of anti-Christian hate crimes and discrimination was kind of just starting, and mm-hmm. people were still very skeptical if it existed at right, all. Right. So our, our organization was founded to really look into it and research. So how do you, how do you define... Uh, a hate crime. Uh, what's the criteria? Mm. We talk about hate crime, first of all, as the name says, if it is a crime indeed, if it's a criminal action that would also be prosecuted if it was not based on a um, on a anti-religious motivation. But then what makes it a specific hate crime is that biased motivation behind it as well. So in our case, we record vandalism of churches, for example, or crimes against Christians, if there is a clear anti-religious bias behind it, and if it's really a criminal action. Okay. So, criminal actions like arson, you know, burning churches, Mm. uh, and um, uh, I I suppose when churches are being burned, there's usually an ideological uh, reason for it. Uh, What are the most frequent hate crimes? The most frequent hate crimes across Europe that we document are still vandalism of churches. Okay. So it takes different forms of, like, statues being torn down, sometimes even beheaded. Um, and then, of course, graffitis being, big graffitis being left on churches, often connected with also crimes inside or um, desecration inside churches. Um, there's also theft. Um, on a larger scale that would then also interrupt church services sometimes. And when it really affects the community and it's clearly a targeting of churches, then that's something we would record. Mm-hmm. And what countries are uh, the biggest offenders? So we have Germany on the top of our list on, uh, on the hate crime report now, uh, which is maybe surprising for some, um, but Germany really has a, the most, hate crimes in general, vandalism, etc., but also is first in arson attacks by far across Europe. Hmm. Okay. So Germany is, uh, is it in class by, by its own, or is, does it have a close competitor? Yeah, we then have France and the UK not so far behind, um, and also Spain is quite high up, up the list with hate crimes. Wow. Um, also churches being targeted, and sometimes really clear anti, in this case, anti-Catholic bias that is also expressed very strongly in the Spanish context, also because of its, of its history and political situation, but there it's more obvious than in other states. Mm. I was going to ask you, do you, are there different reasons for anti-Christian hate crimes in Germany uh, rather than Spain or Poland? I mean, what... Can you see anything that is contextualized uh, by nation? It's very hard to really do thorough research into the motivation of the cases because most perpetrators still remain anonymous. Yeah. What we can see, however, is that it's more that more and more perpetrators actually show their intent and would even be recognizable as as a perpetrator group. So we have now more radical groups that would lead slogans or even sometimes post attacks if they if they do something um, and therefore be identifiable by us. It's still not enough to really make a qualitative or even a quantitative um, statement on like comparing different countries. 
But from my experience, I would say what is interesting, for example, in Spain, is that Spain with its history of like some um, Catholic ruler is very unpopular, of course, historically with some very politically left groups. There is more a politicized context in which the far left um, political groups would be very outspoken in how they attack churches. And unfortunately, there was this slogan in this context that became very famous, inciting to burning churches, which is uh, which is Spanish, but it goes like, the only church that illuminates is the church that burns. And um, if you Google this, you'll find it as a hashtag that really went viral across social media as well, and is really being used as really legitimizing violence against churches because of that intention to just, yeah, to destroy an evil that is seen in the church. Mm. And even more worrisome was the hashtag, like, burn the clergy, wow. which was also used in the same regard, even with pictures of, like, clergy where, where the heads are burning <laughs> in flames. And that mm. was, like, propagated as a political statement in, statement in Spain. And in Germany, in comparison, I would say it's more now also becoming more polarized and politicized. Um, but if we look into the, um, the arson attacks, for example, that are pretty high in Germany, it's still hard to discern um, who are the perpetrators group, the perpetrator mm-hmm. groups are. Is this a problem that the civil authorities are aware of? Does it concern, uh, you know, the, the existing governments? Yes, more and more, I would say. So we've uh, observed that a few countries are stepping up efforts in uh, encountering these hate crimes. We now, in Austria, have a recent report released where besides anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim hate crimes, now anti-Christian hate crimes are recorded as well. Mm-hmm. And there have also been an initiative in France where um, a lot of like really large government fonts um, were really attributed to safeguarding places of worship because with France really being also one of the top countries in terms of vandalism of churches, it became clear that there is actually a need to secure safety of people who want to attend churches and who come to worship there. Hmm. And similarly in Germany, they also now have, some regions have separate reports with this, where um, this like clear data with regard to the different groups is really disseminated and compared and it becomes more clear for some countries that there's also anti-Christian hate crimes happening. Uh, how do hate crimes against Christians compare with hate crimes against Jews or hate crimes against Muslims? We, as Observatory on Tolerance Against Christians, only report hate crimes on Christians, but we compare our numbers with, with what the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OCE, is reporting. And there it's still clear that it's... I mean, last year, actually, there was more, more hate crimes against Christians than, about, than against any other um, religious community across mm. the OCE region. This year, there's more. There's been this year, meaning in 2022, because the OCE only publishes a bit later. So in 2022, there have been more hate crimes against Jewish believers, unfortunately, uh, with yeah, quite a bit higher. I think it was more than a thousand, maybe at 790 for Christians. For the just we look at Europe as a region, and then the OCE, what the OCE does is only also counting what is going on in the United States and in Canada, and there we also see that a lot more anti-Semitic crimes have been reported. At the same time, of course, we know that only what is being reported to the OSCE is actually taken into their hate crime report. And in Europe, we are one of the only organizations reporting on anti-Christian hate crimes. So we know, for example, if we hadn't been there, their numbers 
uh, of hate crimes against Christians would be much lower. Mm. And then, of course, we, we don't find each and every single case. So there's also an issue of underreporting, which I believe also exists in the States, probably. I know you mentioned earlier the difficulty of identifying motivations. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to know mm-hmm. what groups were involved here. Uh, are there any hate groups that can be identified as contributing to a greater degree than other groups? Uh, do you have any names mm-hmm. of these organizations? Yes, we do look closely into those hate crimes that are really identifiable. And we saw that there were the highest group, the highest group that was identified as a group were far left anarchist groups like the Antifa, um, mm-hmm. but also some really far left LGBTI or extreme left feminist groups would, would okay. be in the same cluster. Um, yeah, targeting churches, especially, for example, on the 8th of May, of March, excuse me, um, so certain dates also where you can see that certain groups would go and just like target churches and vandalize or leave, and leave messages and graffiti which indicate that this is a day um, where, where this particular group has been active. Mm-hmm. And then that's, so that's the most frequent group. Um, but then we also have a number of attacks of sat- satanic groups, which is quite worrying, mm-hmm. I have to say, because also they often the form these kind of vandalism and, and yeah, attacks take is really shocking. And then there are some far right uh, far right groups as well that can be identified as such, okay. and then less other like anti clerical groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and November fourteenth, the Helsinki Court of Appeals dismissed the hate speech charges against uh, the uh, uh, Finnish uh, lawmaker uh, Pavi Razanen. She was on trial for expressing her biblical religious views on marriage and sexuality. Do you see uh, much crime, hate crimes committed against outspoken uh, political leaders, those who are, you know, especially uh, vocal about the Christian mm-hmm. faith? Yes. As observatory, we distinguish between um, hate crimes and crimes like taking the form of intolerance and discrimination, which we regard like legal discrimination. Christians being dismissed from their job, or yeah. as the case you just mentioned, a politician uh, even being prosecuted in front of court because of something that she said publicly or on social media, for that matter. And yes, this, this we would regard as a case of discrimination, and we have had a number of cases in the past reporting period, uh, especially coming from the United Kingdom, um, with some legislation similar than the Finnish problem. There is very broad and vague um, anti-hate speech legislation that is being used to really target Christians, for, like used by, of course, sometimes it's just private people who report Christians to the police under these kind of laws. In the UK, there is the public order bill that has been used quite a lot for um, getting Christian street preachers in trouble, so to say, reporting them to the police, because the law also forbids anything that is it is causing distress to the listener. And then, of course, people would go to the police and report these Christians. They, what he preached just caused distress to me, mm. and um, therefore this person needs to be prosecuted. And then, of course, they, they look into it, and, they, they, and there is a whole proceeding. But already that phenomenon in general we see very problematic in terms of like silencing Christians who are outspoken about their religious worldview 
and about the, especially this targets Christians with a more traditional worldview. Yeah. Um, judging by you're looking at the trends over the last ten years that you've been doing this, do you think that uh, crime, hate crimes against Christians, uh, are they showing us? Did they spike last year, or are they on a, a, an, a an upward incline? Yes, we would rather speak of an upward incline in general, especially since since the observatory has been founded more than a decade ago. Really, there has been a steady increase year by year, mm. um, and this is not only because it's being reported more, but with the especially with the issue of arson attacks, we can really see okay, there's now problems that were not there um, ten years ago. Yeah. Uh, that the scale of the problem, but also in terms of discrimination of Christians, there's more and more legal proceedings now um, where we see okay, Christians actually get more into trouble for speaking out about their faith. Laws are being changed, not in favor for the, of religious okay. freedom. And okay. this is also a worrying trend. Anya, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for your work. Uh, we'll talk again, Lord willing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. St. John the Apostle records the John chapter 6 Bread of Life discourse in which Jesus states that his flesh is true food and his blood true drink. Who better to understand John's writings and subsequent teachings than a disciple and student of John, St. Ignatius of Antioch? In his letter to the Smyrnians in 110 A.D., Ignatius writes, I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. And for drink, I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. The Catholic Church absolutely follows St. John and St. Ignatius in taking Jesus at his word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. And let me tell you where we're going um, next hour. Uh, last week, there was a story that got a good deal of, of attention, and that is that there was a viral trend on TikTok in which users began rediscovering Osama bin Laden's Letter to America, which was published back in, I think, uh, 
no later than 2002, explaining his reasons for the 9-11 attacks, um, which came for subsequently. Multiple users on TikTok declared that their eyes had been opened and that Bin Laden made a number of good points. We're going to talk to Raymond Ibrahim, who is the editor of the Al-Qaeda Reader, and Osama Bin Laden's letter is uh, one of the many publications that he has uh, put into the document. We'll get Raymond's fix on this new, might say, rediscovery of Osama bin Laden. And then we look at a remarkable, a remarkable teacher, evangelist, uh, a man of God, Isaac Hecker. This is one of the most important figures of 19th century American Catholicism. And I'd venture to say that relatively few American Catholics are aware of this man's life, his experience, and his influence. We're going to be joined by Dr. John Farina, author of An American Experience of God, The Spirituality of Isaac Hecker. So join us. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me. Let me lead off by offering congratulations uh, to three members of the EWTN radio family. We've got Divine Mercy Radio, KDME, celebrating their 20th year with EWTN, and also Mead County Catholic Radio in Brandenburg, Kentucky, marking nine years with us, and then St. Michael Radio in Broken Arrow in Tulsa, Oklahoma, celebrating 19 years with EWTN. That's great work. Thank you so much, and congratulations to all of you from your friends here at EWTN Global Catholic Radio. Thank you. Okay, coming up this hour, we're going to look at a man whose history is vital uh, to understanding American Catholicism. He was a key figure in 19th century, started a religious order, um, left some writings, but the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops have now kind of moved him forward in his step towards canonization. I'm talking about Isaac Hecker, uh, the founder of the Paulist Fathers. And so we're going to take some time to talk with Dr. John Farina, who's really a, a great historian of Hecker and also a great historian of 19th century American spirituality, especially devotion to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to hear about this man's story, which is remarkable. Also coming up in this hour, we're going to take a look at this weird uh, phenomenon uh, on social media last week, in which Osama bin Laden's letter to America all of a sudden caught fire. People were reading it in light of the events going on in Israel and Gaza, and people were saying, oh, my eyes have now been opened. Um, we can see why uh, uh, Hamas needs to fight against Israel. You, this, is, this letter is worth seeing. Back when this came out, um, 2000, well, it wasn't 2002. I didn't see it until probably a year after that. Um, but 
to say by 2004, I had become familiar with it. And we read portions of it here uh, on the air because it played into, of course, the Iraq War. And uh, maybe it was a little bit later than that. But anyways, early on, we're going to look at it. Osama bin Laden's letter to America, why we are fighting you. My guest will be the editor of the Al-Qaeda reader, uh, Raymond Ibrahim, who's been a guest with us many times in the past. But first, let's get to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Monday, November 20th, it's the Feast of St. Edmund. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Pope Francis plans to meet with families of Israelis held hostage, as well as with family members of Palestinians who are in Gaza. The Vatican announcing the meetings will be held separately, and both will take place this Wednesday after a general audience with the Pope. A Holy See spokesperson said the meetings are of an exclusively humanitarian nature, adding that the Pope's objective is to express his spiritual closeness to the suffering of each individual. The White House says it's making progress to secure the release of the hostages. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, however, told reporters that more work needs to be done to broker a deal. Uh, we believe we're closer than we've ever been, so we're hopeful. Uh, but, uh, but there's still work to be done, um, uh, and nothing is done until it's all done, so uh, we're, we're going to keep working on this. This comes amid news reports that negotiators are nearing a deal to release some of the hostages taken during the October 7th attack on Israel. President Biden also telling reporters earlier today he believes the deal is close. More than 200 people were taken hostage by the militant group last month. Hundreds of Georgia congregations are leaving the United Methodist Church over a divide on LGBTQ issues. The North Georgia Conference of the United Methodist Church voting Saturday to accept the decision of 261 congregations to leave the denomination. As of August, the 30,000 Methodist congregations in the U.S. have seen more than 6,000 being approved for disaffiliation since 2019. And an Ohio priest has been sentenced to life in prison after being convicted on multiple sexual abuse charges, including five counts of sex trafficking. Parish priest Michael Zacharias was arrested on charges in 2020 and his illicit activity dated back to the 1990s. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Raymond Ibrahim is a widely published author, public speaker, Middle East and Islam specialist. His book, Defenders of the West, takes a look at Christian heroes who stood against Islam. Uh, He's also published Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West, and The Al-Qaeda Reader. Uh, He's provided expert testimony for Islam-related lawsuits and has testified before Congress regarding the conceptual failures that dominate American discourse concerning Islam and the worsening plight of Egypt's Christian Copts. He was born and raised in the U.S. by Coptic Egyptian parents who were born and raised in the Middle East and is fluent in both English and Arabic. You can find more at RaymondIbrahim.com. Raymond, good to have you back. Great to be with you again, Al. So were you surprised when you saw this, uh, you know, this viral... Uh, phenomenon regarding Osama bin Laden's, bin Laden's letter to America. Yeah, it, it was it was some serious deja vu for me. <laughs> uh, I, it, it, these people, you know, it came, it got, it went viral on TikTok, and um, these people were treating it like our eyes have finally been opened. It's an epiphany. We've seen the light. This man has shown us 
you know, what's going on and, and why the U.S. is involved in these wars and the role of Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, it's just, uh, you know, it suggests that there's been a complete time warp or gap because we've been there before. We've discussed his letters extensively, yep. and we've shown, specifically I've actually shown in my, in my book, The Al-Qaeda Reader, how um, Osama bin Laden completely contradicts what he says to the West when he's speaking to fellow Muslims. So it's uh, it's sad to see these young people, uh, but it's also reflective of the state of society that, you know, just, just these little, you know, silly things, or it's not silly. At the time, of course, it was always big, but it's really discredited. So they're kind of, you know, they need to catch up with what's going on, and we can definitely talk about how they're discredited, because yeah. that's the main point. Uh, I mean, in the, you know... In the very early part of the letter, he's uh, he's trying to answer the question, why are we fighting and opposing you? This is a letter to America. But he says, when the Muslims conquered Palestine and drove out the Romans in A.D. 638, Palestine and Jerusalem returned to Islam, the religion of all the prophets. Therefore, the call to a historical right to Palestine cannot be raised against the Islamic Ummah that believes in all the prophets of Allah, and we make no distinction between them. So the claim here is that what's Israel doing there at all? Muslims conquered that territory in 638. They're the rightful inheritors of it. And I assume then Israel has no right to exist in that state. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Uh, according, And Osama was basically what he just said there is standard Islamic teaching. Mm -hmm. um, once an area is, they use the word, they euphemize, they say they call it an opening, which is the Arabic word fatha, which is the Palestinian name, of course, um, but it really means conquest. But it's an opening because since Islam came and brought the light of Islam has come in, it's a good thing. So uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land was actually conquered by the Muslims around 637, 638, and since it was conquered, according to mainstream Islamic teaching, it is once and always part of the Islamic Ummah. So this actually applies also to places like Spain, um, because it was once conquered and part of the Islamic world. Uh, you know, one way or the other, it needs to be brought back eventually. But obviously, the, you know, you know the, the main con point of contention is Israel, because it's right smack in the heart of the Middle East, and it's a much more recent sting than, you know, the, the eviction of the Muslims from Spain. But so technically, that's the case. But the thing with you know, the thing with Osama bin Laden is way back in, I think, 2006, I wrote an article, and it was called The Two Faces of Al-Qaeda, and it came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and the whole point was to show that everything he says to the West is very well crafted and actually uh, invokes sort of leftist, you know, paradigms that are intelligible and sensible to a lot of Western people. So it'll talk about, uh, you know, the, the poor Palestinians and the oppressive uh, Israelis, It'll talk about anything and everything that, you know, it talk, they talked about racism, him and uh, uh, Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahri, and how Americans and Westerners are racist and how black people must join with Al-Qaeda. So they've said everything, including that America is evil because it's, it's, it has bad environmental practices and refused to sign the Kyoto Protocol. Mm -hmm. So they definitely knew how to push the right buttons. But then when you looked at what they wrote to fellow Muslims, they made it crystal clear. They didn't even use these terms. They didn't say America. They didn't say Israel. They didn't talk about any of this. This was all ignored, and they used classical Islamic terms. All of these places and peoples, Americans, Israelis, everyone was called an infidel or an Arabic kafir. And all that Al-Qaeda stressed is, by nature, there's nothing they can do 
to ever make us live at peace with them. We always have to go, and when the time comes and when we're able, we have to conquer all of these people, Americans, Israelis, not because of a uh, territorial dispute with the Palestinians, but because they're non-Muslims. And so, you know, think of the Islamic State and ISIS. They were actually, to me, I remember thinking, you know, ISIS is a breath of fresh air because they stopped yeah. lying what <laughs> right. Al-Qaeda used to do. So Al-Qaeda just really had these two faces. Um, on the one hand, talking to Muslims, they sounded like ISIS, which we know is very brutal and savage. But to, to Westerners, they totally spoke a very Western language, and that's what made them uh, very tricky. Uh, but so it's really sad and unfortunate to see that that sort of thing is once again, you know, out of, pulled a, you know, in a vacuum and no context. And here's Osama bin Laden, the guy behind 9-11 and the death of 3,000 Americans, et cetera, et cetera. And you got all these TikTokers who are basically siding with him and saying, yeah, we, we see the light now, thanks to this guy. <laughs> how do, I think, how, how do nations like Egypt uh, or Jordan uh, come to accept Israel? And, you know, Egypt has a peace treaty with uh, You have to acknowledge their right to exist, don't you, before you can sign a yeah, peace treaty? So how do, you, yeah, how do they do that? How do the leaders of, you know, how did Anwar Sadat do that? in light of well, Islam, mainstream yeah. Islamic teaching? Well, so first, uh, mainstream Islamic teaching, as draconian and as supremacist as it is, it also allows a lot of flexibility. And so it'll, it allows, um, and they even cite Muhammad. In fact, Yasser Arafat was once criticized for um, making a sort of, you know, uh, he, for, so, I don't remember if it was the Oslo Accord, but something he was really criticized for offering too many concessions to Israel, supposedly. And his response, which was cryptic to most people, but what it was, he referenced something that the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, did. Um, he basically, what Muhammad had done is he made a temporary truce when he was weaker with his pagan uh, neighbors. And when he got stronger, Muhammad, he went on the offenses and reneged on the truce, on mm -hmm. the treaty. <laughs> and so Arafat was essentially saying, that's what I'm doing, okay, where we Palestinians at this point are in a weakened position, so we will make this concession. But this is not something I'm sticking to, obviously, when the time comes. So I think you can apply that uh, from an Islamic juridical point of view to these countries that you mentioned, Jordan and Egypt. Um, I know whatever the leader, the political leader's um, motive is, you, you can rest assured that the Islamic jurists who support them are using this logic which is basically, okay, yeah, we'll make a peace with you because it's the, that's the best we got at this point, okay? Yeah. So I think that's, that's partially. But also, I would argue that there's a lot of real politique involved amongst these. Uh, not, not everyone is a, is a rabid, foaming at the mouth, ISIS, you know, right, right. fanatic. So a lot of these, um, obviously, Jordan and so forth, they also are approaching it from a realistic perspective that, you know, Israel is here to stay. So you have to parlay with them to some extent instead of, instead of constantly being miserable and fighting. Um, so it's, yeah, it, there's, it's this, you know, different, different concepts and different ways of twisting them around. I was um, reading an essay by uh, Dor Gold, who was, I believe, a former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, and he had written a book called Hatred's Kingdom somewhere around 2002, and it was a, a look at the tone of Muslim preaching in the mosques of Saudi Arabia. It was based on his doctoral dissertation. And the essay I read just, uh, well, it's actually two years old, I think, 
In it, he says that Saudi Arabia is no longer sending money to Hamas, that there's been a change in the way the morality police operate, and that he seemed to think that Saudi Arabia was going through some major changes because of this new crown prince. Can you give me a, an idea of what you think is happening there? Yeah, I've heard the same thing and I'm familiar with it, and a lot of, a lot of reports of that nature are emanating from there. I think to some extent it's legit, but I think it's being exaggerated. Um, and and the, and the way I know that is he is that Prince hasn't been overthrown or killed, because if he if he pushes it if he goes too far, um, he, that that is what would happen. Mm-hmm. But I think um, I think there are incremental uh, changes, and they're probably or in fact they are amongst their own citizens uh, rationalizing again. You know the mis- the misconception people have is that they think Islamic law is very harsh, and it is. The teachings are harsh, but there's a lot of loopholes and, and leeways around it. And um, so a lot of the things, so for example, something like uh, allowing women to drive, let's say, which to us seems like a wow, okay, they made some progress in that case. Um, they could easily come up with some simple loophole. And then you, even your most, uh, you know, rabid so-called Wahhabi would be okay with it. So I think you're having very, very small change, but it's not a, par- a paradigm shift whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. Um, if it was a paradigm shift, it would be a completely different ball game it's just um they are making moderate changes and they are still working within islamic law and sharia and i think that's the main point um the this letter to america uh that you have in the al-qaeda reader uh also you know rejects immorality debauchery fornication homosexuality intoxicants gambling uh usury and and do you think that the people who were coming out in favor of this document last week, do you think they actually read it through? <laughs> I, I had the same exact impression. Um, a lot of the things that he attacks, which are probably the few things that we would agree with, um, are the are the things that these TikTok people, uh, I'm sure, would not agree with. Right. So even even within that letter itself, uh, to your average, you know, like I said, at least the TikTok Gen Z types, that letter itself, even though it's crafted in a propagandistic way not to offend Americans, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's, made, it's meant to make them feel guilty, but it's not meant to um, outrage them by saying, hey, you're an infidel and we're going to kill you. But even within it, it still has, you know, strong condemnation of things that maybe 20 years ago a lot of Americans would have felt a little uh, bashful about, but today they definitely don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, Raymond, thanks so much. Great talking with you again. Really appreciate your work and your time with us. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Al. Raymond Ibrahim. Again, uh, we'll have links to his site, RaymondIbrahim.com. And uh, again, this is an eye-opener. The Al-Qaeda reader is an eye-opener. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me our EWTN family prayer. Today we pray for those who are suffering with Parkinson's disease. Lord Jesus Christ, consolation of the afflicted, you are our refuge. We pray for those who are suffering the effects of Parkinson's disease. As they lose their physical strength and abilities, increase their spiritual strength and abilities. 
renew their inner spirit day after day, and through their share in your sufferings, give the grace of conversion to sinners. In their weakness, reveal your strength. Give peace and joy to those who care for them. Amen. What are some of the common temptations against prayer? The Catechism claims that the most common yet hidden temptation is lack of faith, which is expressed not so much in a declaration of disbelief as our actual preferences. For instance, when we begin to pray, a thousand labors or cares vie for priority. This is a moment of truth for our heart. What is our heart's true love? Do we call on the Lord just as a last resort? Or do we presumptuously call on him as an ally? In each case, the Catechism says, we have not acquired the disposition of the humble heart, which remembers the Lord's words, apart from me, you can do nothing. A presumptuous heart may experience the temptation of assidia, defined as spiritual depression due to lax ascetical practice, decreasing vigilance and carelessness of heart. As Jesus chastised his sleeping apostles in Gethsemane, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, Teach Me to Pray, the free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. I'm Al Cresta. At the fall assembly last week, the U.S. bishops voted to advance the cause of beatification for Father Isaac Hecker, founder of the Paulist Fathers. Hecker is an important figure in American Catholic history, and yet I think it's fair to say most American Catholics are simply unfamiliar with him. My guest, Dr. John Farina, helps us 
to get to know him a little bit, bit better. He's associate professor of religious studies at George Mason University. He was the editor-in-chief of the Paulist Press series, Classics of American Spirituality. And he's the author of many books, including An American Experience of God, The Spirituality of Isaac Hecker, and he's editor of Isaac T. Hecker, The Diary, Romantic Religion, and Antebellum America. And Professor Farina, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Al. It's my pleasure. Let's let's uh, take a look at what the bishops did. Um, was this a long time coming? Well, I guess it depends. I think in the in the, in the history of our our panoply of saints, it's not. It's not. Okay. Uh, you know, the cause was open now. Maybe oh, it's maybe been fifteen years or or not much more than that. So I think it's moving along fairly well. Oh, good, good. So, do we address him now as servant of God? Yes, I think we we do. I think I think that this that this step that the bishops just took doesn't give him a new title. Yeah. Okay. So he still has the servant of God title. Well, let's let's discuss his life. Uh, he's born in 1819, I believe. And um, tell me a little bit about his parents. Well, I was thinking of you, Al. Uh, we don't know one another, but I was looking a little bit at your background. I saw that you were uh, started your ministry as a as an evangelical pastor. Is yes, that right. Yes, that's true. So you would like Hecker because he was a Protestant, <laughs> and uh, his mother was a devout Methodist, and she was part of a very active Methodist church in New York. And we have the records. We have good records from the early 1800s that are actually part of the collection at the New York Public Library. So I was able years ago now to trace her involvement there. And, you know, so they had, in all probability, well, she was a member of these home groups, and you know Methodists, they yeah. come together to encourage one another at home, be accountable to one another in prayer, Bible study, and um, he must have witnessed this as a young man. His father we know less about. He's really sort of absent. Hmm. Um, it's strange. He has, he has a, uh, a brother and a sister, two brothers, and the two brothers, one of them becomes a prominent Catholic, and the other uh, is an Epis- becomes an Episcopalian, and they're, they're a prominent, they become a prominent family because they're, they have a, uh, what starts off as a small baking, flour baking business. And it becomes quite large. The Hecker Mills at Croton became um, quite big, and George especially was very generous to Isaac and became a Catholic along with him. <laughs> and really, without him, there would be no Paulist fathers, probably. Wow. So, uh, Isaac, I know, was a, a real searcher. Uh, t- tell me what drove him. Well, you know, it's a real wonderful lens through which you can look at um the 19th century in America, the 19th, 19th century as, a, as this beautiful panorama of religious experience. I mean, you remember what was going on in the country in the early national and the antebellum period. It was this dynamic change and electric motion, and especially in a place like New York, where hundreds and thousands of people would come through that city every year. And um, so he was, uh, even though he was certainly exposes the youth to Methodism. He doesn't talk much about it. Hmm. When, we, when he first starts, he's in his early 20s, 
and he, he starts the thing which I called later when I published the early diary. But it's just a, really a commonplace book, you know, which was something where it was sort of a cross between a diary and a notepad where he'd be reading, like he was reading a lot of German romantics, like um, Goethe and Schelling and people like this, mm-hmm. and John Paul Richter. And he'd, he'd, he'd copy down long segments and notes, and then he'd go into some reflection on his inner states. So he was very much drawn that way from his earliest writings, which would have been, I think they commence around 1843 or the earliest diary entries. And is he, is he, I mean, that was a very, there was a religious ferment in America at that time, it was the origins of Mormonism. Um, I, I think the, uh, and you would know best, uh, the uh, the uh, movement associated with the, um, um, what we call now the churches of Christ or Christian churches or disciples of Christ, um, right? The restoration movement. That's what I was thinking of. That was right. Going on. And the Adventist and yeah, that. that's yeah. right. The Adventists as well. Um, did he did he visit them? Did he show an interest yes. in any of them? He does. He he is a seeker. Uh, he he knows of a guy named Parley Parker Pratt who was a famous Mormon evangelism, evangelist working in New York City. And he talks with some pretty good knowledge of the Order of Enoch and their way of life. He's dealing with the social question. He wants to find out what the, you know, the, the role religion plays in society and what role religion plays in social transformation. Mm-hmm. So he meets um, Isaac, uh, he meets Orestes Brownson, who comes to New York and gives a speech in a, a local uh, political party called the Local Focos, which your local focus were actually, uh, in, you know, um, matches where you could strike them like our modern matches. Oh, okay. they they call them Local Focos because <laughs> give you a sense of, you know, sort of troublemaker starting fires. Okay, but Brownson, of course, was still a Protestant and a very prominent one, and he came and talked about the role of religion in social change. Remember, these were the days when Ralph Waldo Emerson, whom uh, Hecker came to know, said that every gentleman had in his best pocket a plan for renewing society. <laughs> so wow. this was common in the air. And But he was drawn to the religious element of it. And um, so he with Brownson, Brownson was one of the founding members of a thing called the Transcendentalist Club in Boston before he was a Catholic. And so Hecker meets these transcendentalists, and then actually, uh, at Brownson's advice, goes and lives at Brook Farm. Wow. He's very good friends with Henry David Thoreau, actually stays in his house for a few weeks, knows George Ripley, Emerson, uh, Charles Dana. So he's really and, among uh, the intellectual elite of that era. He is, he is, and, and his brothers are paying for his way. He can afford to do it, and they, they realize he's sort of inclined that way, and they're they're supportive of him. They don't insist that he be back in the, you know, working in the family biz. Okay. Okay. And what did so he... So he really goes through, he really goes through a whole kind of inner revolution, which he writes down very carefully in this thing called the Early Diary between 1843 and 45, where he's dealing with the question, you know, the transcendentalists were famous for an emphasis on experience and immediate sort of revelation through mm-hmm. experience very much influenced by the romantic mood. 
in America. I mean, if you had to look at one example of the you know, impact of romanticism in America on American culture, it would probably be the, the transcendentalists. Yes, okay. And so he, he, and he, what did he think living at, um, you know, the, at these, like, Brook Farm and Fruitlands, what was his experience? What did he think of them as uh, pilot plants for, for uh, American social change? Well, he thought he was, he liked these people. I mean, he got along with them very well. He went to Fruitlands and a guy named, you know, this was Louisa May Alcott's dad, Bronson Alcott, yeah. ran it. And she tells some stories in Little Women about taking cold showers there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he was, they actually had this guy named Charles Dana, who was a British sort of uh, social reformer, religious guy. And I came up years ago, I actually found a listing of the books they had in their little library at, Brook, at Fruitlands, which was, you know, just like a small farm in the outskirts of Boston. And they had really one of the better collections of Catholic mystical religious tracts and, and uh, devotional writers. Wow. St. Francis, St. Ignatius, uh, Fenelon, Guillaume, Fenelon, uh, Molinos, uh, uh, Jacob Burma. You know, it was an extraordinary library. So he loves that stuff. He, he has this sort of, you know, mystical bent, mm -hmm. but he also has this practical side of being an American without any kind of elite, you know, experience and, and wanting and being having a very active side to balance that contemplative uh, attrait that he has. What is it that draws him to Catholicism? I think that one of the quest, one of the things is he, he, he has a very rich and keen experience of the Holy Spirit. He says when he's an old man writing in the 1880s that throughout his life, he felt the nearness of the, of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that is really the main characteristic of his spirituality. I was so happy to hear Father Dolan, um, Bishop Cardinal Dolan, speak about this. I remember we knew one another when he was just Cardinal Dolan, when he was at the Nuncio Church, and we had a little group of Catholic historians. And, of course, he is a, you know, an American Catholic historian. So I was so happy when he, when he gave his address to the, uh, the Bishop's Conference recently talk about the devotion that Hecker had to the Holy Spirit. Huh. And yeah. I thought that was right on. So Hecker has this, but he's, quite, he's, he's, he's asking the fundamental questions. Well, how can I know it's true? Yeah. How can I test it? What role does the community have? And, you know, that's a very Catholic question. And, of course, romanticism was a very Catholic thing. Romanticism, they're going back to Rome, they, they, they idolized the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was a reaction against the Enlightenment. Remember, I mean, if you think of, well, there was a famous French track called L'Homme Machine, Man the Machine, as a sort of typical Enlightenment track, you know? Yeah. Everything's orderly and, and mechanical, and we can understand the laws of nature. Then the Romantics come out and they emphasize mystery and horror and the Grimm's fairy tales, and uh, uh, Olmsted in Central Park, where the design instead of beautiful federal symmetry is all winding and wild like nature. And so this, he's, he's, this is him. And so he's got to say, well, what, if, if, I, if I follow that, what's to stop me from going astray, being deluded? Gotcha. Hold it there, in fact. We're going to take a break and we'll come back. And again, this is the question. Uh, how do I uh, have confidence 
that I'm on the right path um, as I follow the Spirit, and uh, what's to help me stay uh, uh, within the proper framework. My guest, Professor John Farina of George Mason University, our topic, Isaac Hecker. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. The third description of spiritual consolation in the third rule for the discernment of spirits speaks of, as Father Timothy Gallagher writes, the blessed tears of spiritual consolation. St. Ignatius of Loyola teaches, Likewise, when it sheds tears that move to love of its Lord, whether out of love of its Lord, whether out of sorrow for one's sins, or for the passion of Christ our Lord, or because of other things directly ordered to his service and praise. God gives the gift of blessed tears that come forth from the heart of a person who is experiencing his love. These tears speak a gentle response to the gaze of eternal love. Father Gallagher writes, As in every spiritual consolation, the focus remains the conscious sense of the love of God. These tears express the heart's movement toward God in love. May our hearts welcome the gift of tears that declare, I am loved. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Connection with Teresa Tomio. The AP is now saying that news people cannot refer to pregnancy resource centers as pregnancy resource centers or crisis pregnancy centers. They have to refer to them as anti-abortion centers because we're misleading the public by saying that they're offering resources, apparently. It is about consistently putting forth a culture of death to anything you want sexually, being extremely woke every time you turn around. This is more proof that all they care about is their own agenda. And they're doing this to their own demise. 
If you look at the ratings, for example, of CNN, if you look at the subscription rates, right, of various newspapers, whether it's online or still hard copy in, in print, continuing to decrease. And yet they do not care because it's about the agenda. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Professor John Farina at George Mason University. He's editor-in-chief of the Paulist Press series, Classics of American Spirituality, and author of um, An an American Experience of God, The Spirituality of Isaac Hecker. And um, Father Hecker is, in fact, the topic of our conversation here. Before the break, uh, Professor, we were uh, talking about his experience of the Holy Spirit, and him also asking the question of um, what's to keep me uh, on on the direct street path here, and how does he resolve that? Well, it's it's not so much a look at, you know, somebody like Newman or something, a contemporary of him whom he knew, looking at the marks of the Church, uh, you know, more a traditional sort of apologetic. It's really back to this experiential thing. He he becomes convinced that the spirit that's leading him interiorly is is, is the same spirit that leads the church. Ah, okay. And he does this he does this in a rather unsystematic way. Again, following this romantic mood and this uh, emphasis in his own experience, but he's he's very committed to it. He never wavers once he and he you know he he meets Catholics. I mean, Brownson is pushing him in this direction. Bonds is much more of the intellectual, and the, even though he's not a Catholic, he's pushing him with the traditional arguments for the Church. And Hegger accepts them, but then he really goes over when he feels this leading of the Spirit. Spirit, yeah. And, uh, and, and he's converted, <laughs> and he becomes, he becomes a, a redemptorist, which is strange, because he's German-American. So he, he joins this group, like, in a, in a, in a moment, and he signs up one day, and then he, you know, he runs down and gets the permission of the the uh, provincial in Baltimore and is on a ship the next morning sailing to Belgium where he goes into a, a redemptorist um, monastery and, and goes to formation there. He comes out, comes back to America as with a group of other Protestants, three other guys who are, are, are Protestant converts, and they're together in New York, and they want to do missions to non-Catholics. <laughs> and the Redemptors want to do missions to German-American Catholic immigrants. Oh, that's interesting. And this becomes a problem, and they uh, they bounce, they, the, the provincial actually um, uh, expels, expels Hecker, and Hecker being Hecker goes to Rome to protest, goes to, the, <laughs> to see the vicar general. His brother buys the ticket, he goes, he meets the head of propaganda fide, Cardinal Barnabal. And of course, you know, back in those in the 1840s and now it's the early 50s, um, America is the crown jewel in the in the mission empire, as it were, the mission field. And um, so he gets the support of Barnabo. He gets the, and then Pius IX himself intercedes and artfully creates a kind of compromise whereby uh, he can uh, leave the. Redemptorist and gets permission to start the Paulist Fathers, wow. which becomes the first congregation of America, you know, of 
North American priest. That's, that is great. Um, and then he does all this Methodist stuff. He does all the stuff he saw the Methodists doing. Like <laughs> they had a magazine, they had a publication society. He starts the Paulist Press, which they call the Catholic Publication Society. He starts the Catholic World Magazine, which is publishing every every uh, every week, I think, or maybe it's a monthly event, but it's a, it's a big operation. Yeah. And he and he becomes and then he starts doing these missions and he's doing them to non-Catholics. Yeah. And he goes in. He you get a kick out of this. He goes. He takes off his clerics. He dresses like a, a secular gentleman and goes to lyceums. Which you know are, are you know, kind of public lecture yeah. halls, yep. and you know along with Mark Twain and people like this, he shows up. But what does he talk about? He talks about why Catholics venerate Mary, <laughs> you know, why we why we believe in the Pope and these most uh, controversial topics. But does it in this very ironic, open, uh, intellectually honest way, and he becomes very popular. <laughs> That's great. Um, tell me about. Uh, he he ends up going to to the uh, to Rome for the uh, first Vatican Council. Uh, why, yes. why does he Why does I really he go? I want to emphasize this last part of his life because because of various reasons, people emphasize only the part that we've gotten to thus far in the last seventeen or eighteen years of his life. They don't talk about it. and the reason they don't talk about it because his name is mentioned in the controversy called Americanism, which which happens eleven years after he dies in eighteen. 99, the letter that Leo the Thirteenth sends to the the, car, the Archbishop of Baltimore Gibbons, condemning so-called false Americanism, and he actually names Isaac Hecker. Wow! So wow. this has cast a pall on that later years. And one of the exciting things that we're seeing happening now is that we're looking freshly at those last 17 years. He became a, a star of the American church scene. He addresses in the 60s is really the height of his ministry. He's going all over the country, uh, both giving parish missions and doing these secular missions. He addresses the Second uh, Plenary Council of Baltimore, the bishops, on the state of the church in America, and becomes a real expert, as it were, in interpreting the Catholic Church in America to the uh, Europeans. Because he's in Europe because of his training and because of his controversial uh, uh, run with the, the Redemptors early on, and then he, he he goes to the Second Vatican Council as the Paritas. For first Vatican Council, yeah. The First Vatican Council, yeah. thank you. Yes, he's not that old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the First Vatican Council, he's there as the Paritas, and um, he becomes a spokesman for for the Church in America to the Europeans, and a spokesman for what's going on in the European Church and in the Vatican to the American bishops and the American Catholics. Mm-hmm. So he, he plays this extraordinary role at the end of his life. and, and even in, But then he get, it's complicated because he becomes seriously ill. When he comes back from the, second, the First Vatican Council in 1871, he stays, after, he stays for several months and almost a year before he comes home, he experiences this physical deterioration, which is profound. It goes on for the next 17 years. Oh. And he's never able to do what he used to do. And it's a real spiritual trial. But we've had a tendency, because of the way his first biographer, who was a pious disciple named Walter Elliott, writes about it, he just portrays his inner spiritual sufferings as if 
everybody would go would say, oh, this is such a holy man. Hmm. What happens with this Americanist controversy is that after he dies in 88, there's a French translation of this book called The Life of Father Hecker, which is pious disciple Elliot writes, and becomes part of this battle between traditionalists and progressives, progressives saying, you know, the American is a model of a new priest who can reconcile Catholicism with liberalism, and the traditionalists saying, no, he's a Protestant. Wow. He's, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it becomes very bitter. Yeah. But he was, in fact, doing both and remaining very faithful to the Church, and even to Leo XIII, who his last document that he writes uh, a couple of months before he dies, he publishes it in his magazine, is on the, on the work of Leo XIII, which he roundly praises Leo for being able to negotiate this difficult interaction between the church and state in the, in the, in the, in the era in which he finds himself. You know, this, this, this heresy of Americanism, it's often called the phantom heresy. How, yes. how is it regarded now in, in, among church historians? Well, I think we're, we're getting beyond the idea of—I think the Paulists initially— just kind of went underground. I mean, okay. I love the Paulists, but they were, you know, they were a small group. They've never been more than, even at their height, like 220 men. Okay. Now they're significantly less. But, you know, so they were just, you know, their founder is named in this papal scolding, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and, and so then they become very much, you know, they want to continue these special ministries, but right from the beginning, they also have this parish work, which Hecker thought they were saddled with. And there becomes this kind of tug of war between the parish people and the white people who want to be special ministries. Mm. But um, so I think that the last part of his life was just sort of never talked about yeah. much. Yeah. And I've been talking about it a great deal now. We just had a symposium last spring on the old hacker, the old hacker for a new age, I called it. <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the I mean, there's no evidence that he ever denied any of the um, truths of the faith or the morals. I mean, right? No, he really didn't. Yeah. He really didn't. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen every jot and tittle that we have, because I was archivist for the Paulists, too, an historian. And so I had, I, I've seen all that stuff, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. As a matter of fact, there's a great deal to be proud of, because he had this, even with papal and fellow duty, you know, all the American bishops, were inopportunists because they were living in a Protestant country that was deeply anti-Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing they wanted to do was have one more Catholic doctrine to explain to their Protestant neighbors who didn't like them anyway. Newman was originally so, an inopportunist too, wasn't he? Yeah, a yeah. lot of them were. So yeah, the, the Catholic the Americans left before the vote, so they didn't have to vote. But they, the, but when when that vote went down, I mean, right from the get-go, Hecker says, you know what? For 400 years, the Church has been dealing with this question of external authority. It's settled now. Yeah. Now we can turn to the interior work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, very good. And well, there's a whole Holy Spirit movement. And the other guy that does this is, is uh, Cardinal Manning, the British, British guy, who's a big uh, ultramontanist. But he also writes on the work of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. And, and Hecker and he are corresponding, saying yes. Now it's time to emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit because we know now that there's no contradiction when rightly understood between the work in the soul and the work in the church yeah. and the work in society. Yeah. And the, the key to social reform is not social progress from the top down, 
but the renewal of the individual, the restoration of the individual, who then listens to the Spirit and responds and, and acts in a way that is going to renew society. How does he understand this uh, 17 years of illness? Does he see it as the hand of God? How does he deal with it? Yeah. It's, you know, it, we have some things like interior states. You know, these guys are very proper. When he, when he would leave a note, say, on in, notes on interior states, he meant that, and stuff that he wasn't telling anybody else. And part of the problem is that, that Elliot just shares that in his book. And it sounds awful. I mean, he'll say stuff like, uh, I'm a dead man. Like, he leaves the Paulist, actually. He comes back from the Vatican Council, and then he goes back to Europe to get better. And it's just back then, the, the doctors he's seeing are, uh, are saying, go to Europe and take the tour and take the waters, you know, mm-hmm. these, uh, the, you know, find these fountains and these uh, water cures and these baths. And so he's traveling around, but he's also, you know, we used to think he's just doing nothing but being sick. No, no, no. He had, he had been commended right before the First Vatican Council by none, no one less than Pope uh, Pius IX for mm-hmm. his work on the Apostolate. So he knows all these these people in the Apostle of the Press in Europe, and he's meeting with them. And, he's, and we see when, what the way they talk about him. He's writing about his soul, how he's, how he's just suffering right. in, his, in his private notes. And they're writing about this dynamic guy that opened up this whole world of the thriving church in America and inspired them so in Europe. <laughs> wow. And so this is what he's doing. And then he comes home, and he knows, he knows the European scene better than anybody. Wow. So he's this... And he literally says that God is leading him. He says, I, I, he doesn't want to come back after a while. And he writes to the Paulist and he says, God is leading me to become an international Catholic. Wow. And, but he dies before that's really accomplished. He comes home, he comes home out of obedience. He dies in 1888 in New York yeah. with the Paulist at the St. Paul the Apostle Church in New York. Is, is his book, The Church in the Age, still in print? It is. Well, you know, you can get these things now. They're just they're just photographs of the actual one. Okay. Buy that through Amazon for nothing. You should read it. Okay. Professor, thank you so much. That was excellent. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. He is honored by the church as a saint with the title of the angelic doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the Church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title Doctor of the Church. He died in 1274. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month. 
while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Thanks so much. And as usual, you can follow up on any of our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, we'll have uh, Joseph Lacanti's article um, that I used in the first segment of today's program. Um, and that, that uh, outstanding uh, story about uh, Albert Einstein. And then uh, follow up to the information about the Israeli Defense Fund video, be the, uh, in the guest archives, and Anya Hoffman's uh, material for... Um, anti-Christian hate crimes, and then we'll have reference in, in the bookstore. By the way, you can get the Al Qaeda Reader that was edited by Raymond Ibrahim. Uh, whoa, let's see, sixteen years ago, I think. And then we'll have follow-up information on uh, the servant of God Isaac Hecker, who again I think is just a remarkable figure, and um, we'll have books available too in the online bookstore. I'm Al Creston. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.